Last week, Taylor began our new series, Running with the Giants. Remember, right? The premise is found in Hebrews 12, 1, and this is in your notes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. John C. Maxwell wrote a book years ago called Running with the Giants, what the Old Testament heroes want you to know about life and leadership. And that is the inspiration for our series. So picture this. You are in a giant stadium running a race on a track. There's a full capacity crowd roaring, cheering you on. The cloud of witnesses. We're imagining that with each lap, a different giant of the faith joins us. That person tells us our story and encourages, with, encourages us with life lessons along the way. Oftentimes, when we think of giants in the faith, we might think of Abraham or Joseph, David, people like Paul or Peter. But one of my all-time favorites is Esther. In fact, she has an entire book dedicated to telling her story. And I want to challenge you this week, homework, that you to read the book of Esther. It's 10 chapters, it's not very long, but I think as you read it, you'll be encouraged. It's, it's just such a great book. So, as Esther begins to descend from the massive crowd to join us on the track, I think it's only fitting that I give you an introduction. It's interesting to note that, get this, the book of Esther never even mentions the name of God. Never even mentions God. It's unlike any other book in the Bible, but God's handiwork is so obvious in the lives of Esther, the king, her uncle, and the Jewish nation that only God could have orchestrated the events we're about to discuss. So here's a little backstory to Esther, and I'm telling you, her story sounds a lot like a soap opera. Think about it. Drama, over-the-top royal parties, romance, scorn, a murder plot, betrayal, revenge, even brutal death, but it all ends in triumph. Would you not agree it sounds like some soap opera? Esther was a Jewish orphan from the tribe of Judah, raised by her uncle Mordecai. Her given name was Hadassah, and we find that she was very beautiful and lovely. She lived in the fortress of Susa during the reign of King Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, who ruled over 127 provinces, all the way from India to Ethiopia. He was, at that time, the most powerful man in the entire world. And this was all around 483 BC. Many Jews had been exiled, and as a result, they still lived in Persia, which is where she lived. So, in the third year of King Xerxes' reign, he threw the party of all parties. Think about the most extravagant party you've ever been to. Okay, or maybe even one you've seen on TV. And I'm willing to bet that none of those even held a candle to the kind of celebration that Xerxes threw. We're talking like the Grammys or the Emmys after parties aren't even as excessive as this because his celebration lasted 180 days for his nobles, military officials, princes, 180 days. Esther 1.4 says it was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty, just to show off. So let that sink in a moment, 180 days. That's six months of partying. I don't even know how that's possible and how much money, like can you imagine how much that would have cost? And then when that celebration ended, he had another celebration 
for all the people in Susa, from the very greatest to the very, late, to the very least. And that party lasted for seven days. So 180 days, now he's having a seven-day party. It was so opulent that the drinks were served in golden goblets. Each man could drink as much as he wanted, so I'm sure it was pretty wild. And it was so fancy, goldy, the guests even sat on gold and silver couches. Okay, do you agree? Pretty opulent, right? So also, I know, seriously, and it's all men, okay? Because also, is that like Terrence's parties? Also in the palace, the queen of the realm, Queen Vashti, was having her own party for all the women. So, on the last day, the seventh day, King Xerxes was obviously in high spirits, right? Okay, so he asked for his queen, Queen Vashti, to come before the men wearing her royal crown. And we don't know exactly, but it would be assumed it's not just come into the party, wave, and say bye. That probably would have been something inappropriate or something that would kind of demoralize her. So, she refuses, and she's in turn stripped of her crown. She's banished from the kingdom forever, and it was decided that the king would choose a new queen. But it was all to prove a, all to prove a point, because the king and his officials didn't want other women following suit and refusing their husbands. So I don't know about you ladies, but I'm glad I don't live in a time and a place that if you refuse your husband, you're banished from his presence, right? Because I'm pretty sure that Taylor would have banished me by now when I put a stop to his car dreams. Just saying. I think I would be banished. So... Let's be thankful. Well, King Xerxes' anger is, it kind of dissipates and he realizes he misses Vashti. Shocking. So his royal, his royal officials suggest that he searches the empire for beautiful young virgins, that they're brought to him in his royal harem, to, to the palace, they live in the royal harem, and he essentially chooses the one that pleases him the most. They would go through a series of beauty treatments, and the woman he enjoys the most would be made queen. So talk about the beauty pageant of a lifetime, pretty much, right? Xerxes agrees to the plan, and then enters Esther into our story. So we kind of have our backstory. But because of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, were brought to the royal harem in Susa. It wasn't voluntary. This is not, I get to choose if I come, you come or you die. Um, ro the royal eunuch, Haggai, he was over the entire harem, over the process of the women. Um, he, it, he made sure that things went as planned. So let's take a moment to unpack the significance of this event. Here's Esther, a Jew, living in a pagan culture. She likely had plans of her own. This wasn't a part of that plan. She lived with her Jewish uncle. Anybody remember what his name is? Mordecai. And her life was likely pretty simple. And here she was, thrown into a life of opulence, totally different than what she knew. Right? Now she lived in a strange place, alone in terms of family, but surrounded by complete strangers, all competing for the same prize, the royal crown. Now, I'm not into dating shows like The Bachelor. I'm just not. You can ask Taylor. But imagine that concept. We've heard of that, right? The show. Everyone's competing. So instead of competing for the affection of a good-looking business owner or maybe the affection of a professional athlete, you're competing for the heart of the most powerful man in the world. It was a big deal. The ladies were likely catty. I mean, if you think about it, selfish. Maybe not very kind, because it's survival of the fittest. The prize is one of great value. It's the crown. Also, it could mean your own life if you refused what you were supposed to do, and the stakes were high. 
this detour was not what Esther was planning on. So that brings us to our main idea that's woven all the way through the book of Esther. As Esther joins us on our lap at the starting line, she's she says to remember that God's ways, it's in your notes, are higher than our ways. God's ways are higher. Easy blink. Surely Esther could never have imagined that she would be brought to the palace and eventually win the heart of the king. But God knew she lived a life of surrender to his plan and the Lord completely outdid himself. So that's why Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, we put it in your notes. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because the same is true for us. We have no idea what the full picture of our lives is. But God does. He has the master plan because he is the master planner. Let that sink in a moment. He has the master plan because he is the master planner. Taylor has a drone that he loves to fly in the field behind our house. And Abigail and Matthew and Maggie are golden doodle. Every time he brings it out, it's like a game. And they want to go run out in the field and have Taylor chase them with the drone. Not really the safest thing. He kind of stays up above, but it is just the best thing for them. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we noticed that one of the houses that abuts are the field is they were doing some construction and they have a really cool pool and they have a really nice patio area. And so we assumed that they were building a pool house. You know, I mean, you can kind of see that they're working on something. So we're like, oh, it's got to be a pool house because they're laying foundation or something. Well, what we didn't know is till Taylor pulled out his drone and we saw the full picture that it was actually a fully turfed soccer field, full on soccer field in their backyard, complete with goals. There's all the lines on the field. It's pretty cool. But we simply didn't have the bigger picture. It's like, why didn't Josh do that? Huh? All of a sudden it made sense though. And so truly that parallels our lives. Our thinking and our planning is just limited to what we can see and what we know. But God, like with that picture, the bigger picture of the drone, he knows all, he sees all, his ways are higher than our ways. So that brings us to our first turn on the track with Esther. She turns to us and said, says, God is still working even in an unplanned situation. God is still working, even in an unplanned situation. What do you do when life doesn't go as planned? You can have the most meticulously laid out plans, and they just don't come to fruition. Anybody been there? Yes. I'm a planner, and I've been since I was a kid. I just bugged my parents all the time. What are we going to do today? What are we going to have for dinner today? I had to know, you know. I still annoy Taylor. I'll ask him, what are we going to do this weekend? When are we planning our next vacation? And I'm just always pestering him for the plan. And Taylor likes to joke, if you don't make plans, you won't be disappointed when they don't work out. When it comes to fun like that, because I'm like so bummed. It never fails. If we plan on a vacation and it doesn't work out, I'm just super bummed. And so I have to work on that. That's why I always say one of my favorite quotes is flexible people never get bent out of shape because I constantly have to remind myself that sometimes. So believe me when I say oftentimes this life just does not work as planned. And one thing in this life that we can count on is that we can count on our plans changing. 
So it can come in the form of an illness, maybe a job change, or the dissolution of a friendship, or maybe it could be an opportunity for a promotion or the deal of a lifetime. But know that even in the unknown, God knows and sees and he cares. It's our job to trust him, to ask for wisdom, and to keep moving forward. Know this, God will bring good out of what seems like a hopeless situation. And that's exactly what he did for Esther. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Such a great verse. Whether the unplanned situation is a good thing or a difficult thing, good can still come out of the situation. You can still grow and be changed for the better. No matter what the Lord has planned for you or whether or not he has revealed his plan to you yet, you are not alone on the journey. We have no reason to fear. Rather, embrace the uncertainty, rejoicing in the truth that no matter what happens, the Lord is with us. Isn't that such a great comfort? The Lord is with you. Because the unknown can be a scary place. I read this story and I thought it was the perfect illustration for this. So it was taken from an old mariner's chart, or in other words, map, drawn in 1525, long time ago, right? On display in the British Museum in London. It outlined the North American coastline and adjacent waters. The cartographer, or the map maker, made some intriguing notations on the areas of the map that had not yet been explored. He wrote, here be giants, here be fiery scorpions, here be dragons. Eventually, the map came into the possession of Sir John Franklin, a British explorer in the early 1800s. Scratching out the fearful inscriptions, he wrote these words across the map. Here is God. Even in the unknown or the unplanned, here is God. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Know that here is God. He is still working, and his ways are higher than our ways. Esther had no way of knowing just how God was going to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything she could ever imagine, and yet he did. He, she just remained faithful through it all. What I love about Esther is she remained true to herself, even amidst a trying situation. The book of Esther tells us multiple times how she found favor. First, she found favor with the lead eunuch, Haggai. The women in the harem were ordered 12 months of special beauty treatments. Some of your husbands think you take a long time to get ready in the morning. 12 months, my word. All in preparation for that one night with the king. But it was during that process that Esther won over the heart of the lead eunuch, who's named Haggai. So in Esther 2.9, it says, Haggai was impressed, very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. So as we are rounding the second turn with Esther, she tells us, remain faithful and wise and favor will follow. Remain faithful and wise and favor will follow. Esther continued to show she was faithful and wise. And as a result, she was shown incredible favor in the harem and beyond. She didn't grow bitter. She served God and asked for wisdom. What exactly is favor? The Oxford Dictionary defines it as approval, support, or liking for someone or something. For us, favor might not come right away or it might not come from the person you want it to come from. I know I've experienced that. 
but we know that God's favor will follow us as we do his will. So it might be with a supervisor or a family member or maybe even a coworker or neighbor. Have you ever found yourself completely amazed at goodness or kindness shown to you? That's favor. Maybe you got a job you were unqualified for, or maybe your neighbor just seems drawn to you for no specific reason. That's God's favor. Now, don't think that favor is merely your doing or my doing. It's not because we're so amazing or good at what we do, although that's part of it. But don't forget the God factor. It's a supernatural blessing from him. Continue to seek his wisdom for how to proceed forward. He doesn't give you favor merely just for your own enjoyment. It's to bring honor to him. And it's because of this desire that we discover a valuable snippet about Esther's story. In Esther 2.15, it says, When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. You see, the significance is that she chose not to be selfish. Instead, she chose wisdom. For before a woman could go spend the night with the king, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted from the royal collection. So it would be easy to have a gimme gimme attitude. I'm thinking some diamonds from Tiffany and Company. That's personally what I would choose. For an outfit, something maybe Chanel S. I have nothing in my closet like that. But with the king, I mean, he's giving it, right? Or maybe some Dolce and Cabana or something like that. But I mean, who could resist that? What do you think? Something dripping with diamonds, really beautiful, elegant, opulent. But Esther was able to say, I don't, I'm not just going to go for what I want, but what would please the king? And please the king, she did. We find out that in Xerxes' seventh year of his reign, she was taken to him at the royal palace. In Esther 2, 17 and 18, here is the reaction of King Xerxes. He said, or it says, And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her, he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet. This guy loves to party. In Esther's honor for all of his nobles and, and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. He's also pretty giving, too. So Esther found favor, but because of that favor, she was able to fulfill her life's calling. That favor wasn't just for her. It was to fulfill her life's calling. Proverbs 3, 1 to 4. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. They will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win what? favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. But now we're turning a corner in Esther's story. Not only was she meant to be the queen, she was meant to save her people. Bill Hybel said, God delights in pouring his favor on obedient risk takers. So we're going to find out what that means. Esther is the queen of the realm, married to the most powerful man in the world at that time, but she had a secret she was a Jew, and she kept her nationality a secret. One night, while her uncle Mordecai was sitting by the king's gate, he overheard two guards conspiring to assassinate the king. Anybody remember this story? You guys remember this story? Okay, Mordecai immediately tells, the, tells Queen Esther of the plan, and Esther told the king. So, the king is saved. 
he puts a stop to it, he throws the, um, he hangs the two guards. And the credit is given to Mordecai, but as nothing is done for Mordecai. So Mordecai saves the king, nothing happens beyond that besides the two guards being hung and the king is safe. But the king had a right-hand man, Haman, who was full of pride. And Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman because naturally he was a Jew. He only bowed down to one God, God. He didn't bow down to other people or what have you. So it just bothered Haman to no end. I mean, he was enraged at this, at this fact. And so it's not good enough for Haman to want to kill Mordecai. He finds out he's a Jew. He wants to kill the entire Jewish nation. So to carry out his plan, Haman convinced King Xerxes that the Jews were plotting to hurt the king. They were anti-king, and they set a date when the Jews would be totally annihilated. So Mordecai learns of this plan as well because he sits at the king's gate, and he told Esther about it. He implored her to approach the king to stop it. Of course, Esther's afraid for her own life. No one could approach the king without him summon, without being summoned. So it could mean death for her. It's a big deal. Esther tried to avoid taking any action, but Mordecai again pleaded with her to do something to save the Jewish people. Probably the most um, quoted verse in Esther is this, Esther 4.14. Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this? And I got to say, I love Esther's reaction. It's kind of her humanness here. She's not supernatural. She's not, oh, I'm so holier than thou or I'm perfect all the time. She's fearful. She's afraid for her own life. And she wants to avoid doing it, right? It's kind of like she realizes what a request this could mean. It could mean her position, and not only her position, her life. But at last, Esther instructs Mordecai and all the Jews to join her in fasting for three days and three nights, and then she would approach the king with her request. So as promised, Esther went to the king after the period of fasting. He raises up his royal scepter that says, you can come, and she comes to him and he says, what, what would you like, Queen Esther? I will give you up to half of the kingdom. She just has all this favor. She says, would you please, you and Haman, could you come to a banquet with me today? So she, he comes to the banquet, Haman comes to the banquet, and um, while they're there, she doesn't tell him her request. She says, will you come to another banquet the following day? And truthfully, I always thought that Esther just chickened out in the situation. Anybody think that when you read the story? I did. I thought, like, she doesn't have enough guts to do it. She just can't bring herself to do it. And that's kind of always what I thought. But setting it deeper, it truly is God was working here, and it wasn't yet time. There had to be some things that happened before she told the king. First off, Haman was so infuriated with Mordecai that evening that he set up a 75-foot pole to impale Mordecai on. And he planned on talking with the king about it the following day. So this happened after the first banquet, before the second banquet. So that's significant event number one. Number two, have you ever had one of those nights where you couldn't sleep before and you choose to read a book instead? The king did, and it was a book of all the things that happened during his reign. And one of the events that he hears is about Mordecai saving his life. And the king asks his attendants, 
what was done for Mordecai? And they say, nothing. And so the king is trying to think, what can I do for Mordecai? Well, at that point, it said, the king says, who is in my outer courts? Well, who is in his outer courts at that time? But Haman coming to talk about Mordecai, if he can impale him. So the king says, what should I do about the man that the king wishes to honor? Well, Haman's so proud and haughty, and he thinks that the king is talking about him. So he's like, oh, you should put that man or put him in royal robes that the king has worn. You can put him on a royal horse that the king has rode, put a royal crest on his head and have your most trusted advisor pull him around on a horse or, you know, lead him around on a horse and say, this is the man, this is what is done for the man the king's delights to honor in. And the king is like, that's great, Haman, you make it happen for Mordecai. And Haman is like, oh, infuriated. And he has to lead his mortal enemy around and saying, this is the man the Lord delights to honor. Totally ironic, but if that wouldn't have, if Esther would have told the king before, that might not have happened. So Mordecai is publicly honored. I can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, that would actually be kind of funny. So, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of just things that it's like God is obviously working, and God kind of has a sense of humor how he does it as well. So it is during the, the second banquet, King Esther had arranged for King and Haman. Uh, the king again asked, what do you want, Esther? You can have up to half the kingdom. And Esther, using all the bravery she can, she tells the king of the plot to kill the Jews. And she said, it's this man here, Haman is plotting to kill my family, myself, my family, all of my relatives, my entire nationality, and the king is furious, and he goes away and comes back, and he sees Haman is trying to get on the, like, the couch. He's getting in Esther's personal space and saying, please save me, and the king is just absolutely infuriated. It says, while he is still talking, guards come, take him away, and they impale him on that very pole that he set up. For Mordecai and I mean what he meant for to be terrible God used and look at that enemy was impaled on that very same pole for an ironic twist Queen Esther was given Haman's estate she put Mordecai in charge over it and Mordecai was given the signet ring that Haman wore showing this is the man the Lord delights in and look at he's way up here in the ranks so to this at this next turn, Esther tells us, to fulfill God's purpose for your life, it requires bold faith. To fulfill God's purpose for your life, it requires bold faith. Esther showed a measure of dignity under pressure few of us will ever experience in our lifetimes. When she surrendered to God and counted the cost, she chose courage and became completely transparent and vulnerable before the king. Because the truth is, no matter what tomorrow brings, we don't need to be afraid. God could require you to do some things that are totally out of your comfort zone, right, in order to fulfill your life's calling, but God is with you. Esther didn't know how the situation would turn out, but she chose to trust that God was with her, and we need that kind of faith. I kind of thought this was interesting. An apologetics article from Fuller Seminary told, said this about Esther. Be that as it may, Esther remains a testimony to faith, and not, as we tend to hear it today, as faith in faith itself, but rather a faith in a God whose faithfulness is sure whatever circumstances may prevail. God is faithful. That's what we can place our hope and our trust in. That's what should spur us on to be obedient and act with boldness, no matter the situation. Isn't that so true, guys? 
Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Ooh, that kind of gets me. No doubt there'll be times in our life that will require you or me to speak up. It may be to stop a vulgar joke, shut down gossip, tell someone about Christ. And it's in those times that we need to choose boldness. It's a pure, simple choice. We must choose boldness. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Have you ever seen a lion hunt down prey on Animal Planet? One, it's disgusting. But two, there's no reservation there, right? They go at it with everything they got. They do. They, they wait. They watch and they go and they succeed. There's a reason why they're called the king of the jungle. A.W. Towser said, Christians should be the boldest people in the world, not cocky and sure of ourselves, but sure of him. Think about that, being as bold as a lion because we're sure of him, the one who's with us. Rest assured, God goes before you. Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist preacher, said, this is a cool quote, true boldness for Christ transcends all. It's indifferent to the displeasure of either friends or foes. Boldness enables Christians to forsake all than Christ and to prefer to offend all rather than offend him. We should be so fixed and focused on pleasing, pleasing God, it's but a small thing to choose the world. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. Do not limit what God wants to do through your life. Your boldness may be exactly what someone needs to hear. Do it afraid. That's one thing my parents told me all growing up, do it afraid. So now that brings us to our final turn. We're just about finished with Esther. She, before she disappears into the crowd of witness, witnesses, because the, the finish line is in view, she beckons us to finish the race well. Before joining the crowd, she turns to us and says, this is our last thing, what you may see as a setback, God sees as a setup. What you may see as a setback, God sees as a setup. Mordecai and Esther showed extreme faith, and God blessed them beyond what they could ever have imagined. Their enemy was impaled on the very pole he built for Mordecai, and they were given his estate and the very signet ring he wore. Paula White said, God takes what the enemy meant for your bad, and he turns it for your good. It wasn't a setback, but a setup. Wait and see what God is getting ready to do for you. So you might think God has forsaken you or forgotten you, but it may be that he's preparing you for something even greater, just as he did for Esther and Mordecai. Allow him to avenge you. Don't always feel like you have to take care of it. Allow God to fight your battles. He is way more capable than you and me. This is kind of our last little thought. Remember Joseph in the Bible kind of relates to this in a way. Think about it. He was sold by his older brothers as a slave in Egypt. He went through some tough setbacks, even prison, after being falsely accused. But he didn't get bitter. Instead, he too remained faithful, and he found incredible favor. He was even elevated to the position of second in command in all of Egypt. Sound familiar? Yeah. Because of that, he saved an entire generation from perishing in a seven-year famine including his family. So when his brothers apologized him to him years later, instead of being bitter, he says this in Genesis 50:20, "You intended to harm me, 
but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Because what the enemy has meant for evil, God can use it for good. That's why all these points work together. It's almost like a big circle of life. God's ways are higher than our ways, right? God is still working, even in an unplanned situation. Remain faithful and wise, and favor will follow. To fulfill God's purpose for your life, it requires bold faith. What you may see as a setback, God sees as a setup. Because we know that God's ways are higher than our ways. Her act impacted generations to come. You know, it's like she stepped out in faith. She trusted that God's ways were higher than her ways. And she had favor amidst through everything. And the same is true for us. Whatever it may be that God's calling you to, he's asking, will you say yes? If he asks you to do it, do you have enough boldness to trust in his sovereignty? And so that's what I want to encourage you today is to really take this week as you're reading through Esther, which I hope you'll do, to really say, God, what, what do you need me to say yes to? How am I not trusting that your ways are higher than my ways? Or how do I need to have bold faith? Or how do I need to trust you more in this way? Whatever it may be, because we want to be people who say yes to God. Thank you for tuning in today. For more content like this, visit our website, www.pathwaychurchok.com to see the variety of ways you can download this content and so much more. It's our pleasure that you would tune in, and we believe that if you take the content you just heard, write down the parts that spoke to you, and work on a plan to apply it, you will not be the same person a year from now. We hope today you can take this content, apply it, share it, let it change you, and you can become all God has called you to become. Thank you again for tuning in. We'll be together again soon. Until then, keep growing.